Welcome back to Conversations with Coco and Friends. I'm your host, Coco, aka Katrina Smart. Every episode, I'll be having real conversations with the people who inspire me. We go deep and we go there. And I've got my girls with me. This podcast is co-hosted by two of my friends who I happen to also work with. Cleo is a kick-ass producer and a problem solver. And Pilar is an insane director and social media manager. We hope you enjoy these conversations as much as we enjoy having them. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So let's kick it off with one of our most asked questions, Devin. How did you go from university to the founder of Flow? We want to go way, way back. <laughs> so I had been workshopping ideas with my mom since I was 15 or 16 years old. Every time we'd be out at restaurants and having my underground glass of wine that she would order for me. <laughs> yes, I love your relationship with your mom. It's so amazing. That's what I hope for me and Harlow. Oh, that is definitely coming down the pipeline for you and H for sure. Yeah, we'd be ideating on napkins and so many, you know, great ideas that we explored. And then we'd sort of get down the path and be like, hey, you know what? That's not for us. Or we don't actually think it's going to be as lucrative as it is a good idea. And after many sharing of different jams and brainstorms, we were on the phone one day when I was at the London College of Fashion in my second year of university. And we were having a cheeky mother-daughter giggle about how my mom had gone to this event called, I think it was WXN, the top 100 most powerful women in business in Canada. Because at that point, she had had a couple of uh, really successful businesses that were not consumer facing in a totally different space and was attending these events. And she was like, Bean, which is my nickname. And she's like, Bean, I don't know what it was, but you know, I was in this room full of Canada's 100 most powerful women and all of them looked like shit. <laughs> I was like, what? She's like, yeah. I mean, everybody had pedicures and manicures, but everybody was wearing like gym ponytails, like horrible hair. So we were laughing about sort of A, the woes of being, you know, working mothers and working women and and the many, the many unfair expectations there are, but also that clearly this group of very uh, thoughtful, strategic, powerful women were thinking about how they show up as a vessel for communicating um, because they were going and there was evidence of that in, you know, what they, their ensemble or their nails. And we thought, well, why aren't women getting blow dries? And it was literally a 10 or 15 minute conversation on the phone between my mom uh, with a few chuckles where we landed on that blow dries were too expensive and they took too long and they were inconsistent in the salon experience. Um, and very quickly that led us down the path of me saying, okay, well, I have a small business course in my communications degree at LCF. Um, why don't I use the professor's help and I'll doctor up a business plan? Two weeks later, I submitted the business plan at school and uh, five, six months after that, we opened our first location. That's so crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is that so timeline too, like literally from thought to execution. You all move swift. Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting because of course I did write a business plan and in the business plan, there was a marketing plan, but the reality was 
we were kind of the only case study we needed. Like we were the women we were targeting. So we didn't go do like a, a huge canvas of customers. We knew we had faced this problem before. We had been in the salons that we love and had the the junior person who was sweeping the floor when we walked in, you know, be washing our hair and then halfway drying it. And then the seasoned hairstylist coming and spending five minutes on you for finishing and then you paying $200 for an hour and 15 minute blow dry. And so we had been there and we'd had that experience and, and we knew that that blow dries hadn't been created to scale, to be leveraged in the salon environment. They were just too inconsistent and too expensive. So we thought, well, why don't we pull blow dries out of the salon, give them their own experience, make them consistent and, and make them more affordable. And so the whole vision of blow was this idea of um, cat, catwalk quality uh, hair, um, but an affordable luxury. Amen. We are all blow goers to this day, so <laughs> we can relate. Um, and then we flash forward quite quickly. We want to know the process of you and your mom deciding that it was time to step away from blow and sell it. Like how hard was it to actually let go of something that you two had put so much work into and so early on? Yeah. Great question. So we had self-financed um, that business and it was a franchise model and that was the intent from the beginning. And remember, this was like a totally different landscape. It was, there was like no girl boss. There was no female founders. There was no like forerunners with, you know, rad Silicon Valley female founders investing in things like Glossier. Like none of this existed yet. So when you talked about venture capital, people were investing in oil and gold mines and, you know, really a really different array of stuff. And, you know, you were even more, it's still difficult to find women in that space, but it was even more of a rare occurrence. And so the conversations we were having with people in venture were pretty hysterical. I remember one particular conversation where we, um, I was presenting the idea to a gentleman in Vancouver who finances businesses. And he scoffed at me and said, like, this has no legs. Why would, why would women who have two hands and a blow dryer, <laughs> why would women who have two hands and a blow dryer pay to have somebody else do their hair? Like Obviously you don't know that, bro. You have you ever blow dried a head of hair? Probably had, he probably he was probably bald too. Literally, he probably receding hairline fishing people out here, being like, "Why would anyone do that?" Oh my gosh! And I just remember, you know, this is like twenty-one-year-old Dev at the time sitting in front of this like much older gentleman, kind of doing this at him, batting my eyes, and I had a big long pause, and I said. Sir, I urge you, he was a hetero man and with a wife. And I said, I urge you to pull up your and your wife's visa statements and no doubt you will find charges for blow dries. <laughs> He's like, all right. But, you know, it was so different. So there was no point of reference for people uh, who were in the VC space in terms of like wanting to fund A, a beauty concept, A, a retail concept. Uh, with with um, founders who were new, because while my mom was an experienced entrepreneur and she was my co-founder in Below, we had a third partner, Val Litwin, who's an amazing man here in BC and is currently running for um, head of the BC Liberal Party, which is pretty exciting. And um, and you know we were all new to this this space as well, so the idea of beauty and hair. Um, so this being said, franchise was a huge part of our growth model and we bootstrapped our growth. So each franchise we sold funded our continued growth of our core HQ operating costs. So each franchise funded the next uh, stage of growth. And, and we did that for a number of years. Um, but in, gosh, like the first three months, we had hundreds of franchise requests organically by word of mouth it was there was a level of virality which is actually crazy to think about because at that time you know Katrina you had one of like the first blogs in Canada like there was not a whole lot going on on the internet and so to think that that was you know there was this level of virality is sort of bonkers to to reflect on now and 
what that meant was that we started fielding a ton of interest, both from an acquisition or partnership perspective and from a franchise perspective. And, you know, as you do when you're an entrepreneur, you're looking all the way along at um, assessing, you know, what is the best partnership or exit strategy. And sometimes the first deals are not the best deals. Um, and you do your best to, um, to look for the, uh, the best exit strategy or partnerships. And so for us, we ended up partnering with a group out of Ontario. And then um, a number of years later, I guess five, roughly five years later, ended up exiting our share. So selling our shares to our merger partner. So and your, to your question, Pilar, of what did it feel like to, to do that, to sell our business? This is something that I have thought about over the last few years and and that question of like, is your business your baby? But for me, business has always been a vessel for impact and I'm a, a builder. So I like the problem solving part of entrepreneurialism. Um, and I'm very clear on that now as a second time entrepreneur in my new venture and um, that that is my my juicy spot where I live, where I like to play. It is in the creative ideation, the, the initial problem solving. And once you've solved a lot of the problems, um, I start to get excited about, you know, the next, the next problem to solve. And so, yeah, it wasn't a hard thing to do. You know, I think when you make values-based decisions, you don't, you don't regret those decisions. I love that mindset. What would you say to someone who's struggling to let go of their business? that needs to, like it's time for them to get out and they, their business is their baby. So they're having attachment issues and in, in moving forward to solve that next problem. Didn't Elsa say it best? Let it go. Let it go. Yes, we did. Hold you back anymore. Period. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think that the, it's really important to contemplate where your gifts best serve your venture. And sometimes that doesn't mean exiting or selling completely. Sometimes it means you are the perfect CEO till X stage of growth. And then you're like, you know what? The best next role that I can play is as chairwoman and in a mentorship and, you know, creative director type of position supporting a new CEO. And so it's really critical when we're thinking about scaling businesses that we also are really clear and transparent with ourselves where our gifts best serve the business and when that starts to change because that should influence what other roles you step into to support growth in your company and it doesn't always mean selling or exiting it can sometimes mean stepping into a new and different role and then inviting in the next best person to step into the role you were holding I feel like that takes a lot of killing the ego. Like you really have to kill the ego to be able to see from that perspective how you can serve your business because you're coming from a place of service rather than um, wanting to be caught up in what the title is of everything. And for everybody out there, being a CEO kind of sucks. It's not that fun. <laughs> it's a lot. And we all know they always say imitation is the best form of flattery. But like Drake recently said, imitation isn't flattery. It's just annoying me. It's annoying. It's so <laughs> annoying. How do you get over the people who like steal your ideas or who stole your ideas? Yeah. So I think it, it's all contextual, isn't it? It's like there's you, we see this so much in music and in the arts or, or even in, in literature. It is so much a part of the history of, of, of great works of art is and great creations is being inspired and borrowing the ideas of others that you then um, employ in a different light or in a different context. And, and that can be looked at as two things, like straight up annoying when it's done without um, recognition or honoring that in terms of the person who's the borrower and, and then I think it isn't annoying when it is done in recognition and in honoring of somebody who's come before you and whose idea you're playing on or borrowing. Um, in that case, it can forge incredible, you know, um, relationships, friendships, um, al allyships, and be a huge honor to have somebody come up underneath of you and borrow an idea. And so, yeah, I mean, we had something similar 
happen um, with blow blow dry bar. We, of course, were the first blow dry bar in the world. And we started in Vancouver, Canada. I guess when I was 21, it was 2006. And, um, and a few years later, a gal out of the U.S., out of L.A., started the dry bar. And I... I actually didn't know that the dry bar story was told this way until I heard her talk to Guy Raz, whose podcast I love on NPR, How I Built This. And she actually told me and my mom's story as if it were her story. And I, I was doing the drive from Worcester to Vancouver and I just like roared in the car with laughter because it was so preposterous to me and such a missed opportunity that um, this amazing and talented woman who has gone and started another amazing business that is Blow Blow Dry Bar's largest competitor, the Dry Bar, is that there was such an opportunity to say, oh gosh, you know, I, I saw this business. I actually applied to be a franchisee, which she did. She went to through the franchisee process with us and we disclosed all of our documentation and our business Bible and everything, a business in a box. Um, that is and, so messed up. I'm sorry, but this is so crazy to me. I hate it. Yeah, but I mean, this is exactly that that what we talked about, right? It's sort of when there's honoring versus when there's not. And just think about the different relationship she and I could have had as other like women in business or even between our businesses and creating camaraderie and allyship in what is so difficult to achieve, which is to be a successful woman in business. And there was such an opportunity there for her to say, yeah, I was so inspired. I found this company called Blow Blow Dry Bar. They were the first blow dry bar in the world. And I loved this story and I love their approach. But when I looked at it, I thought that I wanted to take a different approach and use a different voice. And that's what I've done and check it out. And like, that is still a cool story because what she's doing is then repurposing something and saying, I'm going to give this a different voice. And so I think this is a huge, often missed opportunity when people are creating works of art, be it business or writing or music, is that piece of honoring and recognizing. We expect some level of inspiration and borrowing. I think the big missing piece is just honoring and recognition. So, Devin, COVID has been um, an interesting up and down. The last couple of years have been crazy. Um, I know that you have two beautiful children that are like seriously the cutest kids on the planet and you are separated from your partner. How do you manage it all? Because I, being someone who's been through a divorce, who has one kid, I know that that is like it threw everything for a loop as, as much as I try to prepare for things to not mm-hmm. go crazy things inevitably when you have change, you can't anticipate everything that's going to happen. So how have you been able to manage this new startup along with motherhood and separation? Well, thank you. They are cute kids. You've got a pretty cute one too. (laughs) Um, And it has been a very robust two years, frankly, um, where there were moments that I thought, is this, am I reaching my limit of like bandwidth and capacity? Am I like about to be there? And I've never been there before. So it was a a feeling that, you know, I was oscillating like, oh, do I have more to give? I'm not sure. Um, And we separated uh, literally months before, two months before uh, the pandemic. And, And so we were, as a family, going through some of the most challenging experiences that families go through in terms of, you know, the ideas that you hold dear and the vision that you hold when you decide to have um, children with someone and the vision that your children hold about what that means and what their future looks like. Um, And at the time, my daughter, who's five now, was a three and Rosen, who's seven now, was um, just turning five. And it was extremely challenging. The decision was directed by me. It's a decision that he would tell you that he would not have made and that, you know, he's 
not super stoked on still. However, it is a, something that I thought about for, I'd say, a year and a half to two years. And we had talked about it the Christmas before, where I communicated to him that I um, that I knew that my tipping point, we were arriving at it. And I said, this is not an ultimatum. This is me waving the white flag and letting you know that I am about to reach the end. And if this behavior continues, I don't know whether that end is in a month or in three years, but I know I can feel that I'm getting there. And this is just me waving the white flag. This is not an ultimatum. This is not a threat. I'm saying help. And that was the year before. And unfortunately, the things that were difficult continued to persist. Um, And I contemplated, you know, how, what life would look like living in two different homes. I contemplated what life would feel like, what work would feel like living in two different homes, how I could still be set up to be a patient, um, purposeful parent and business person and to be, you know, quote unquote, on my own. And I also thought about what I would say to Rosen and Clooney. What words would I use to give life to this that was age appropriate and that was also fair and transparent? And I thought about what I was going to say to him because ultimately I love him deeply and it wasn't a decision I wanted to make. I wanted behaviors to change. I wanted to be together and continue to work towards our vision. And I was realizing that when I talk about that tipping point or me reaching my end, that it was an energetical end. It was an end where I knew that the way that I was showing up in the world would be compromised if I continued to stay in the relationship. So I think that's probably a feeling that you can relate to. 100%. I'm like, (laughs) yes, yes. Not as organized in my thoughts as that, but yes. And I think something that is not often talked about, but can be said for women, I definitely go through this often, is that uh, we tend to be very thoughtful creatures. And it, it seems that there's like a, there's a lot of, a lot of times, like what I went through was like saying that, like, I know that I want to be in this relationship, but things have to change. And I'm letting you know that things have to change because if they don't, I'm going to get to the point where it just completely turns off. Mm -hmm. Like there's no going back, like the point of no return. So it's interesting that you said there's, there's almost like these warning signs and these preparations and these, these signals and that if the person's not going to pay attention to it, that maybe there's this idea that if you're with someone who's like a giver, who's always there, that there's, you can constantly push and you can constantly push because yeah. Um, givers always and people like they are they're always there to give you a soft landing but then, right. then there comes a point where you just can't be that that anymore you can't be that cushion or punching bag whichever way you're looking at it right um, but because you had this you had this amazing relationship with your mother and you have a daughter what's some advice you can give this is a question i get all the time because there's this idea that like Harlow's really strong. And I think most of it just comes from her. Like she's a very, she's a very outgoing kind of opinionated person. But what's some advice that you would give on raising a strong woman? Well, I mean, on the topic of Harlow, I would say to you, um, woman to woman, that no doubt that that is in her DNA and is core to, to her spirit and soul. And no doubt in the same breath. She lives and and breathes every day with the support, love, and role modeling of a fiercely independent and strong mother. So that is very helpful to cultivate, you know, another uh, generation of strong women. So lucky Harlow. And I I hope um, that Clooney is getting the same experience. I know that that's the experience I got with my mom. And I think what we all know is that... So much of strength actually comes from doing the thing that most people don't want to do or wouldn't do. We often misinterpret strength, I think maybe because of sports, 
as enduring as like staying the course, whatever it takes to cross the finish line. It's just not a super relevant analogy to relationships and and life. And I think that, you know, strength in um, outside of sports can often be demonstrated and seen in people doing all the things that others uh, don't want to do because it's frankly too hard. And that sometimes can be having the conversation that's too hard or making a decision that's too hard. And, and it's in those moments that we grow and it's in those moments that, you know, we look at our parents and we observe quietly and and then we become adults. And those decisions that we observed our parents making and them doing it with you know, grace and humility and transparency whilst having transparency, whilst also protecting us as children. And because that's, you know, still that phrase of like, let children be children. Children should not have to carry the weight of adult relationships and adult decisions. And I think that when we have those experiences, then within us, as we become adults, that strength seeds from those formative experiences and so yeah I mean from a I guess from like a tips and tricks perspective I I don't know that there are tips and tricks I think that it's just us remembering that that so much of what we would want to encourage our daughters to do as they become you know young young girls and women is going to be seated in them observing and witnessing us making the hard decisions and saying the difficult things. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. That's some facts right there. I'm, I'm like one more, one more piece. This a never-ending question. Um, <laughs> tactically, what's some advice that you can give to busy working mothers? Like, how do you manage your day to day? And even, even still, like you pre-COVID traveled a lot, mm-hmm. and now during not COVID, so much, <laughs> not, not so much, and also being like working remotely, like from Whistler, and mm-hmm. how are you able to manage all of those things while being a present mother and like, is it, do you, how do you manage your calendar? Do you, is it very, very restrictive or are you more open with it? Yeah. I, when I started my company sphere, I knew that building this company remotely was the best strategic decision for the company, for what we do, our purpose, and also the best strategic decision for me and for what I believe people need and certainly the people that I wanted to attract working with. And, you know, let's like rewind before the pandemic. I think the stat, we can fact check this, but I believe the stat was 15% of people had um, remote experiences. And I believe the adjusted stat is over 40% of people are having remote experiences um, in a post-pandemic space. Huge, huge. I mean, I hadn't, yeah. And I mean, I, before I had quite a uh, respected and revered um, investor of a fund. Sometimes I pitch funds to just see how they respond like certain venture capital funds that I think were too early stage for. I'll just 
pitch and see. And like, I want to hear what they say. I want to hear what's difficult. I want to hear what their challenges are. And this particular fund was like, I love this model. I think this is the future. I love the approach. I just haven't seen a unicorn company with a remote CEO. And that was his email back to me. And I remember like saying it to myself and you will. <laughs> and, and you will. And not just about me, that this is this is the direction that things are headed. And you know, I'm definitely a renegade. I I get what probably one of the things, the few things that actually irritates me is when people say, well, we've tried that and it just doesn't work. Nothing irritates me more because you know, iteration is, is how we get to innovation. And so we got to try things over and over again in different ways. And we got to assume that each time we try something we've tried before, the context has changed, the environment has changed. And so the result may be different. And that is definitely true for remote work. And it's meant that for me as a parent, as a person, as a person, as a business person, I have everything I need in my toolkit to uh, give me the best chance of showing up as my best self on a daily basis. And for me, that's time with my kids. I was not going to start another business. My appetite for entrepreneurship was, was not bigger than my appetite to be a parent that I'm proud of being. And so I knew that if I was going to start a business, it would not interrupt or affect my ability to be like, a rock star mom and to feel comfortable with what that meant and to feel happy with the way that I was parenting and the time that I have for my kids and having a remote company allows that. And now we've got two other parents on the team at Sphere and we call them the Sphere dads. They're two dads, um, Rob and Sean, and nothing gives me more joy and pride as a business owner or CEO than when they send me slacks and tell me about one of their kids getting sick and how they were able to go drop whatever they need to drop and be there with their kid. And there didn't need to be an argument or a discussion with their partner about, well, which parent was going to have to take the day off work and break it to their boss. It was like, they knew that we're a remote company, family comes first um, and that as a remote company, you can pick up that time later. And there's an, an obscene level of trust that comes from being remote where you really have over communication, high levels of communication and an inherent um, trust and respect of time and trust and respect of like outcomes. So that that allows for just total flexibility. It allows for people to you know, really prioritize health and prioritize family, and those sh- things should come before work. Well said. And you guys want to come work with us? <laughs> Have we yeah. recruited you? <laughs> you sold us, Devin. Honestly, if anyone can do it, it's you. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the platform sphere because I feel like when you were back in Toronto for CocoCon years ago, you were in the very <laughs> early, early stages of creating a beta version of it. But for those who are totally unfamiliar, tell us how it worked, why you started it and how it's going. Yeah, absolutely. We were, we were just a little idea on a piece of paper then trying to put together a team and find people to build something awesome. Um, Today, Sphere is kind of like the class pass of personal and professional development where you can come to the Sphere app, take an assessment. We look at the areas of life you want to grow, what your needs are, and we match you with best fit guides for you from our ecosystem of over 400 personal and professional coaches around the world. And you can have um, your own coaching experience. And so it is very much a marketplace and platform connecting people who want to grow with the best fit coaches and coaching experiences for them. <laughs> I know. I love, I love to see this kind of like come full circle and now it's at like a way higher level. And I remember actually what's interesting about this is one of my old clients from forever ago, Slack friend came to CocoCon and she was so excited. And she was one of like your first signups to be coach on Spear. And I remember when she got it, she was like, 
I thought Devin looked so cool. And then she hit me. She's like, I got it. Like, <laughs> was that Eva? Uh, no, her name is um, Anna Gordon. Oh, oh, Anna. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how she found it. And she was so jazzed. Like, the HR was the best thing ever. So um, she is a rock star. We love Anna. She's an amazing sphere guide and coach. Um, yeah, I mean, it really has, it, it, it is really exciting to be working on something in the world right now that has a net positive outcome. Um, and that really, um, you know, we are just, just starting to, to, see and understand um, what the future looks like in terms of just the level of ambiguity and uncertainty we will continue to face in humanity and the tools and resources we need to to not just combat that, but thrive in uncertainty and ambiguity. And, you know, what is so exciting about being in the business of democratizing coaching is that coaching is scientifically proven to drive social and emotional intelligence and to increase core attributes like optimism and resilience and creativity and well-being, all of the key ingredients um, in in the leaders of the future and in terms of how we thrive in um, increasingly uncertain times. Could you explain the difference then maybe just for our listeners between therapy versus coaching? Because I think it's nuanced, but important. Oh, yeah. It's such a great question. And it is totally nuanced. And, you know, coaching is about 40 years old. So it's a much like that sounds old, but it's actually very new in terms of um, the history of, of therapy. I mean, therapy and counseling have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And and the best way to think about sort of therapy versus coaching, if you're going, okay, you know, how I got to where I am isn't going to get me to where I want to go next or to what I want to experience next. So what resource should I call on? Therapy is very much reactive care. Um, People go to therapy when they, um, particularly when they are seeking sort of um, a diagnosis, um, psychotherapy, are are treating core issues. Um, And we look at coaching as proactive well-being. So this is about um, having an action plan and orienting towards the next decisions that you make and the behaviors that, um, that follow with those decisions. There are many cases where what people need is actually both therapy and coaching. Um, so not in harmony. Um, I work with therapy and coaching um, on a continuum. There are two very different experiences. Um, sometimes similar subject matters come up in both um, of those kinds of conversations, but the outcome of coaching is very much proactive growth and well-being. So it's action-oriented. It's about you navigating a plan and the approach that that coach is taking with you is using their certification training and specializations to help distill within yourself the answer and and then to create next steps so really the best way to think of it is therapy is reactive care and coaching is proactive growth and well-being so like more of the equivalent of like you know, the gym for your, for your brain and for your spirit. We love that analogy. Devin, I feel like you were ahead of the game pre-pandemic and knowing that the future is leaning towards a more remote world and flexible schedule. How did COVID affect fear as a business? Oh yeah. I mean, we, we have some competitors in the coaching space for sure, but what Sphere is doing is looking at the future of coaching, not what coaching has been historically. And all of our competitors focus on B2B and enterprise. What's interesting, though, is that uh, very much reignited and, and further incentivized by the pandemic is a huge movement towards the creator class and gig economy. 
So what's really changing had started to change before the pandemic and is really changing at rapid speed now is that there are more and more folks who are continuing to keep a full-time or part-time job and start a side hustle or work in the gig economy as freelancers and consultants or course creators or artists and makers. And what happened out of the pandemic is people went, oh, it is much safer And I feel more secure and independent when I have at least two sources of income. And so what this is doing is growing the creator economy. In fact, the creator economy is going to be bigger than the economy of traditionally employed people by 2027. So there will be more artists, makers, creators, freelancers, and consultants than there will be traditionally employed people, which for Sphere is so exciting because this is this is where we get to meet people, you know, where they're at and in what they need most. And, you know, so many of us will have had um, jobs where our executive leader or uh, our manager had access to coaching and we didn't. And then we go on to start our own projects and maybe we are employing contractors or we have our first part-time employee and suddenly we're in a very direct leadership position taking on responsibilities and having to consider things that we've never had to consider or be responsible for before. And these are the moments where people really go, oh, I want to try this thing called coaching. And so for us, we're all about serving the growth of the greater economy. We're about serving the makers, artists, freelancers, and consultants who are really passionate about their well-being and their growth and about the goals that they want to achieve. And we can help them do that. That's pretty dope. It's interesting that this pandemic has turned people into spirit in a more unique way, probably in a way that you just didn't expect that it was coming. So with that being said, what is next for spirit? Yeah, we've spent really the the last 18 to 24 months proving out our hypothesis, really iterating on the product and and perfecting the experience so that we can be in a position to now really scale the brand and to start rolling out exciting partnerships with brands and and communities and creators um, to democratize coaching. So what you can expect from us and what you can expect to see next year is us working with communities of creators, with creators themselves, uh, to bring this tool to the forefront and to part of the conversation. Because what's really needed here and our job now is sort of to tap people on the shoulder and say, there's yoga, there's breath work, there's meditation, and there's coaching. Love it. I'm on this mission for people to like reevaluate failure in their life. I think people mm-hmm. get so down and, and focused on on failing as a super negative thing, but I feel like every time I've failed, something better's happened. How do you deal with failure? Oh, I couldn't agree with you more um, in terms of like the net, the net net outcome of failure is always that there's a better idea <laughs> or there's a, you know, a different perspective that you didn't see before, a lens you didn't have. So I take the gut punch that failure at first feels like (laughs) because it really does feel like being punched in the gut. Sometimes I cry. um, And, you know, for me, um, allowing myself to feel the frustration and disappointment of something that feels like a failure is a big part of helping me move very quickly and resiliently through those feelings onto, so what do I do with this information now? And, and that is where, like, what did I learn? What did, do I see now that I didn't see before? What would I try differently with this information? And using that opportunity to ask questions to then um, articulate your next steps forward is definitely uh, the path that I take. And I think that is really critical that you don't bypass the gut punch because you eventually will need to feel shitty. (laughs) And so like, you know, don't put that off, like feel those feelings, feel disappointed, you know, feel angry. And then once you move through those feelings and you have a run or you do a digital version of the class or whatever your thing is, (laughs) 
those are my things, is you then sit down and you ask yourself the questions about, you know, what you see now that you didn't see before, what you've learned, what information do you have now that you didn't have before? And, and what does that mean in terms of your next steps? And I really love to think of this idea of options. I don't do well. And I think we don't do well in terms of the collective when we feel we don't have options. We feel back into a corner. We that start to then get that fight or flight response. So the best thing we can do after, you know, we've failed at something is then ask those questions and then not to just create one path forward, but to articulate at least three options um, of a path forward of next steps, because that then starts to um, to see that feeling of um, abundance and optimism. Absolutely. I almost like that three path option as opposed to like a pros and cons list, you know, that almost gives you another route to see the future in a positive light. Devin, we all deal with imposter syndrome. We actually have a full episode coming out on CWC and friends (laughs) on this topic because it is so consuming, but how does Devin Brooks drum up confidence as the strong female founder and mother that you are? I definitely took a confidence hit after separating. I think the pandemic was a huge confidence hit for so many of us on our mental health, um, feelings of, you know, angstiness or anxiety for some, plans not working out like we'd hoped, hard lefts appearing when we expected to go right, all of those things. So I think, yeah, you're right. It does not surprise me why you guys have an episode on imposter syndrome. It's a big deal. And for me, what builds up my courage and what makes me feel like I can take on anything and I have what it takes is being highly physical is one focus for me. So that is mountain biking. I'm a huge mountain biker and snowboarder. I love backcountry touring. And while those sound like, you know, just kind of simple athletic fitnessy things for me, they're very spiritual. There's something extraordinary about being in the bigness of the mountains, doing activities that are high risk, that require optimal focus. Otherwise there are huge consequences if I'm not paying attention. And these things build up my courage. They remind me when I look out at the horizon and I see these huge mountain peaks that I am just riding and slaying on my mountain bike or my snowboard is they remind me what I'm capable of and that I'm constantly overcoming fears that I'm constantly doing more than I think that I can do. So that is a huge, huge hack for me. Um, when I start to get that like, you know, icky little feeling in my solar plexus, uh, I get on my bike or I pack up my 32 liter and I go backcountry touring. And the second thing is to use the tools in my toolbox, you know, insert meditation, writing, coaching, conversations with, you know, the handful of people in my life who I feel know my spirit and essence and who can call me to task when I'm being too small or playing too small. And I call on those things whenever I need them, sometimes all at once, plus a candle and an altar, you know, whatever it takes. (laughs) Yeah, we need to be really forgiving with ourselves. I never looked at, I don't know if you would call it like extreme sports, but like extreme sports, I'm using air quotes, as a way to like test your fears and then make you more confident to do other things. I just thought everybody who did it, like stuff like that was like, oh, it's just because I love it. But you're putting, kind of flipping that on its head, saying, yeah, you love it, but you do it because it scares you a little bit and pushes you further. So unique way of looking at it. And I like it. And I think um, that you've just made me rethink because Jimmy's really into extreme sports and I've made him stop doing all of them like all of them (laughs) because he gets injured and then complains like a baby for like two weeks and I'm like bro no one told you to jump out of the helicopter with skis on like nobody told you but also hearing you say that it it, that rush provides some kind of therapeutic thing I think maybe we'll put a couple more things back into the schedule (laughs) back into the roster yeah it's extremely courage building and it's extremely clarifying and for me there that is my first hack 
for for imposter syndrome. And, and I recognize imposter syndrome because it's easy to work with a label um, once you know what the feeling is. So the feeling for me is that icky, tingly feeling in my solar plexus. So kind of right at the top of my ribs, under my heart, under my chest. And, and so for you, I think it's, we all need to ask ourselves, what is the feeling that we have when we're about to feel like we're not good enough? Um, and then as soon as you feel that like sneaky little feeling to then go and do the thing that helps build your courage, that helps affirm what you're made of. Tell me. <laughs> I suspect I know the answer to this question, but I'm, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are and your beliefs are on manifestation. I feel like based on everything that you said, like you definitely think this is real. I mean, and that you have the ability to do it through challenging yourself to be better and like you said having people around you will take you to task when you are not you know vibrating at your highest level so and i would be surprised you you manifested working from home culture so pretty sure <laughs> <laughs> sure yes yeah i mean if my rebuttal because you guys read me correctly my rebuttal to anyone that doesn't believe in manifestation or my loving invitation towards considering that manifestation is real would be that look at all that we do and all that we have created in the world and in the universe using only such a small percentage of our brain and we are only at the infancy of understanding what we're capable of and understanding how to tap into the rest of our brain, that all there is, is opportunity for calling in, you know, what we want to experience. And I, I fundamentally, uh, unabashedly believe that if we can do both, manifest through thinking, speaking into fruition, as well as taking the actionable steps, because that's the thing that lots of people forget is you can't just think things to truth. They, you also need to then be following up with, with actions, small and large, every day that cultivate that truth that you're seeking, that experience that you're seeking. So yeah, I believe one, 100% that with the extreme power of the mind, um, we can manifest and cultivate exactly what we want and, and exactly what we need and what is good for us um, and supports our highest selves 100% without a doubt. <laughs> I feel like we all needed that reminder. <laughs> Devin, are there any podcasts or books that you're loving right now or all time favorites that you can share with our audience? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I just read. I just read Yunmi Park's book, In Order to Live. I highly recommend this book. I in inhaled it in three evenings. Uh, it's extraordinary. It's about a young woman um, who escapes the North Korean regime at 13 years old with her mother. I, I can barely read fiction because there are too many incredible stories of real people that I love memoirs and biographies. So Yunmi Park, read in order to live. Um, I listen to, I'm, I'm obsessed. I really like Joe Rogan and I was late to like the Joe Rogan thing. Cause you know, I, I, he's like a big, bald, strong dude. I can totally see why people are like, you know, that's a podcast for meatheads. It's totally not. It is. It's extraordinary. Um, and I say that with love because, of course, I was married to a meathead for a long time. Meatheads are great. <laughs> There's more, much more to meatheads than meets the eye. And um, and his podcast is is extraordinary. The humility that he brings to the conversations he has, the variety of discussions that he digs into on his podcast. So the Joe Rogan experience, I listen to fairly regularly. Um, he blows me away. And then uh, Under the Skin, Russell Brand uh, is another podcast that 
I love, I think I love those two podcasts because they explore a lot about society and politics and psychedelics and the power of the mind. Um, And I think that these two gentlemen both take an approach to these conversations that are very invitational, that has just a ton of humility. They approach everything with just childlike curiosity, but also an incredible amount of reading and their own research that just makes these conversations, I find, thrilling. Um, So yeah, those those would be the things that I really love. And finally, our final question, I'd love to ask you, answered this quite a bit, but I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to talk about or share with our audience about how you self-care. So not like, not the hashtag (laughs) self-care Instagram version, but other than extreme sports, is there anything else you do to take care of Devin? Oh man. I mean, spending time with my kids in nature is a huge practice of self-care for me. Um, nothing is more grounding and nurturing than spending uh, quiet, curious time in the woods with my children, just watching what they watch and noticing what they notice and playing with what they want to play with. So time with my kids. Um, and I am a big like walker on calls. I try to have like almost no video meetings at all. Um, after I've met someone for the first time, I really try to just talk and walk. Um, you know, not only is it good for me, but we also uh, think with more clarity and more with more creativity when we're moving. Um, so that's a huge self-care practice for me is taking as many walking calls as I can. Um, honoring I'm an I'm a morning person like a big time morning person and I I I like like to get up early and I pride myself on getting up early um and so part of my self-care is that when I actually really feel the call for more sleep allowing myself to sleep in is a huge luxury for me but also a big practice of honoring my body and listening closely enough um that I don't just you know will myself out of bed every morning because I like to be a morning person and doing things slowly. It sounds very simple, but when I am starting to feel like I am losing my grip on something uh, or I'm not, you know, being thinking sharply and sort of feeling ready, I really do things slowly on purpose, whether that's like making my coffee in the morning. And this sounds ridiculous, but we've all like done the and then you're out the door with your coffee and your Kinto mug. But for me, it's like kind of lining everything up and, you know, carefully, lovingly taking each step to make my coffee or to make my tea. So yeah, self-care practice for me is, is taking those like small little mundane tasks that are a part of our everyday and doing them slowly and with love and sort of surrender. Oh, that was beautiful. Seriously, we we have a group chat um, that we that we kind of check each other on while we're um while we're recording. And literally Cleo wrote, Do I want to marry Devin? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, Cleo, I'm into it. It's like yeah. you're so peaceful and thoughtful and <laughs> and Polaris like like I love her words. Like it's like it's like everything you say is just like <laughs> we're all like breathing out, like ah, pushing out the bad energy. <laughs> I mean, can you be my life coach? Can you save me from everything? <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your energy and your brain and your thoughts with us. You you are a transformative human being, and we are so lucky to have you in our circle and I wish you were closer and you better come to Toronto because we missed you. (laughs) I'm really excited for whenever I get to be there next and I will expect not only anticipate that I get to have a meal with the three of you. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you, you. Devin. Let our audience know where they can find you and Sphere on social. Yeah, so sphere.guide, if you want to go take the app for a whirl, it's free to jump in and take the assessment and meet some guides before you decide that you're, you know, ready for coaching. And at sphere.guide on Instagram and me personally, 
is at devs development on Instagram, where you will um, find many of photos of my wildling children. <laughs>catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.